0: Well, I want you to identify in your mind the feeling that you have when you read a passage like that or when a passage like that is read for you. How do you feel afterwards? You see, it's okay to feel when you read a passage like that. In fact, you should. That's the idea of a passage like this. You're supposed to feel things. In fact, if you feel nothing, that's probably a problem. What is it for you? What's the word that describes your, your feeling? Is it, is it outrage? Or anger? Or just upset? Cry for justice? I wonder what the word is in your mind that describes your feelings as you read a passage like that. This section of scripture wants us to react that way. That's the point. We should be outraged. We should be angered, upset, crying out for justice when we read a passage like this and the next two chapters. Now, for some people, the fact that this chapter is in the Bible leads them to have a range of questions. Why would the Bible, God's holy book, have a passage like this in it? How could it possibly be the case? Well, that is a different question. You see, the Bible wants us to feel outrage. God wants us to feel outrage and anger and upset and a cry for justice at a passage like this, but it would be a wrong leap to suggest that it should not be in the Bible. See, what is in the Bible is God's story of rescue for humans, people like you and I. And so, as a result, in the Bible is humanity with all of its problems. With all of its issues, shining a mirror into our own world. Sometimes the Bible is understood by people as being a big book of morality. And you find the characters in the Bible and you emulate them. And so when we come to a passage like this, we see no one to emulate. And that is absolutely 100% correct. There is no one here to emulate. Everyone here is terrible. See, the Bible is not a book of morality. If we look through the characters of the Bible, even the ones we consider great, like King David, there's a morality there that we ought not copy. Usually, when it comes especially to the Old Testament, but not exclusively, the people of the Bible are more often not worth uh, imitating rather than imitating themselves. And so this passage is in the Bible. To show us our own outrage and anger and upset and their cry for justice at these types of situations. And chapter 19 is close to the worst passage you'll find in the description of human nature. Having said that, chapters 20 and 21 aren't a whole lot better. This morning we're going to look at all three chapters. And we're going to see what this means for us in our day and our age. And you might like to ask a question because there's a lot going on here. And uh, there's a lot that you might like to ask about. So slido.com this morning. There's already a couple of questions there, which is great. Slido.com and the hashtag is HBSP. I'm going to pray for us. Then we're going to look at these three chapters together. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, with these words uh, that Chris has uh, read so well for us, we ask, please, Uh, that that you would help us to understand what you have to say through this passage this morning. We recognise that your word is telling us here that this is an outrageous situation, not something we uh, should look to to emulate in any way, shape or form. It's teaching us something else. And so we pray that you'd open our eyes this morning to see what this passage and the chapters around it are telling us so that we might heed your warnings and see your grace. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, importantly, this passage starts and finishes in the same way. It's book ended that way, and it's very important for us to notice it. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, and so it goes on. And if you flick with me in your Bible to the end of chapter 21, we see the same refrain with an addition. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The narrator who's telling us this story bookends the story of a horrific horrific occasion with this reality. For the rest of the time, the narrator more or less stands back and simply gives us the information. But the commentary on this issue is at the beginning and the end. There was no king in Israel and everyone did as they saw Fit, what was right in their own eyes. This is a picture, these three chapters, of life without God as king. This is a picture of life without a human king to restrain the sin of the nation. This is a picture of human life with self actualization Self-centred lifestyle. It's interesting, isn't it? We're brought up to think that way. We're brought up to think of ourselves As being the centre of the world. And this passage is a danger to all of us who think that way. And so we begin the passage in chapter 19 and verse 1 and we meet a Levite. This Levite, supposed to be a holy man of God, was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, verse 1 tells us. And he took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem. This Levite had an unnamed concubine who is also referred to throughout the passage, you might have noticed, as his wife. Why both? Why wife sometimes and concubine at other times? Well, I think the narrator is trying to show us that this woman was actually his wife. But the way he treats her is, well, like a concubine and even worse. However, in verse 2, she's not great by herself to begin with. She starts as an unfaithful woman. Verse 2 says she was unfaithful to her husband. And so she runs away from the household and back to her father's house. And her husband pursues her and meets her at the father's house. And then there's a long section in the first part of chapter 19 about how the father is very hospitable here. Please stay for another day. No, please stay for another day. No, please stay for another day. And every day the Levite gets up to leave. He says, no, 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 please stay another day. See, what we notice here in the case of the father is a great sense of hospitality. Hospitality towards the Levite and towards his wife, the daughter of the father. Now, why is he so hospitable? Why is he over the top in his hospitality? Well, most likely, it's not just because he's kind. Most likely, he's hoping that his daughter will not receive the cultural punishment of the day for unfaithfulness in marriage, that is, death. And so he's going over the top with his hospitality just to make sure that his daughter will be okay. You surely can't hurt my daughter if, well, if I'm going to treat you so well. But we'll also see that the hospitality is a contrast to what they will find just a little while later. Well finally, the Levite and his wife are allowed to leave, and they come to the city of Jebus, or what we know as Jerusalem. But in those days, Jerusalem wasn't the place where God's people met. it was the house. It was the place where the Jebusites lived. That's why it was called Jebus. And it was getting late in the day and they contemplated going into the city of Jerusalem and staying there. But they said to each other, no, why will we go in there? That's where all the foreigners are. We're going to get a really hard time. Now, of course, there ought not to have been uh, foreigners in that city. God's people should have driven them out. Chapter 1 and 2 teach us that. But they did not do so. And so they don't go into the city of Jerusalem for fear, for the danger that they might come across. But little do they know what they're going to go through. In Gibeah. Because that's where they come to next. Coming to the city of Gibeah, they're willing to go in because this is an Israelite town. The tribe of Benjamin live here in Gibeah, and there's an assumption that they will be met with hospitality in this place. But strikingly, there is no hospitality. They're left in the town square for someone to come and say, Come and stay at my place, as should be the Israelite custom. But it does not happen. Instead, they're ignored until an Ephraimite, noticeably he's not from the tribe of Benjamin. He's out of place as well. He comes up to them after a, a day in the field and says, come and stay with me. He's a kind man, or at least it seems. The scene is a good one, isn't it? Here's this old man coming in from the field, probably walking slowly towards the couple and he says, come and stay with me. Don't stay out here in the, in the cold. Come in and you, you can imagine what the scene might be like. There's the fire inside the house and they're all sitting around drinking tea and eating Werther's Originals and they're sitting by the fire and it's all well and good, kind and warm and welcoming. And we look at this guy and we say, he's equally as hospitable as the father was. And then, then the bang comes at the door. And it's a mob. A mob trying to smash the door off its hinges. Again, put yourself in the shoes of those inside the house. Imagine what would happen if that was taking place in your household tonight. You're sitting there, eating your own as Original, and there's a big bang on the door and a mob outside. What would be the initial feeling you would have? What's more, this mob wants Something making a mockery of the Israelite hospitality laws that require that you take people into your house, this mob don't just want to know him, as verse 22 euphemistically puts it. They want to homosexually gang-rape the visitor. Now, for for those of you that know your Bibles, this is Sodom, the city of Sodom that we see in the book of Genesis. That is destroyed by God now come to the nation of God's people, Israel. the sin of Sodom is being repeated within the nation of Israel now that's bad enough, isn't it? I mean we just pulled the plug there that's enough It's disgraceful what's going on there. Bring that man out so we can homosexually gang rape him, but that's not what happens, it gets worse, much, much worse. The old man, who we thought might have been a good guy, he offers up his daughter. And in the end, it's not the daughter, but the uh, the visitor's wife, the concubine, who is, in a sense, thrown out to the angry mob. Here, have her. And she is raped to death. It is disgraceful what we see happening here. There's no other words for it. And yet... It compounds itself as time goes on. Verse 27. And her master rose up in the morning and when he opened the doors of the house, he went out to go on his way and behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of, his house, of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Just consider this. This man pursued his wife, got back with her and yet so easily threw her out to be gang-raped and killed. Where is he when the waves of pain and agony are mixed with pollution and powerlessness are going through her body? Where is he? What's he doing? Look again at verse 27. He was asleep. We know that because her master rose up in the morning. Did you have a good sleep? That's a disgraceful act on this man's part, isn't it? Not looking after her, not protecting her, not caring for her. Here was he inside, asleep and warm and harshly responding to her dead in the doorway. Absolutely disgraceful. Now again, we look at this passage and we say, that's enough now, surely. Let's pull the plug on that now, but it gets worse again. He takes out a knife and he chops this dead woman up, his wife, into 12 pieces and delivers her to the various tribes of Israel. Who knows how that happened? But we don't need to know, do we? Why did he do it? Well, it was to incite a reaction to the horror of what had just happened. And horror it was. And so he is trying to incite the rest of the nation of Israel to a reaction to the horrible thing that had happened. But hang on, he was asleep inside in the warm. What a joke this guy is. And that's what chapter 20 is about. In chapter 20, we see the disgrace of this man, the Levites. Unsurprisingly, the mail that is given to all the tribes of Israel evokes a response. That's the idea. The body parts evoke a response. And all of the tribes of Israel come together in angst and angriness. So what's going on here? And the man shares what's going on, but he covers over his own part in it. No, it had nothing to do with me. And so the nation of Israel... 11 tribes show up to this meeting and they're all filthy angry with what has taken place. Instructively, the tribe of Benjamin do not turn up. They're very happy to protect the perverts in Gibeah. And as a result, war breaks out. War breaks out where the uh, tribe of Benjamin is near enough to destroy it. And we might say in our hearts, fair enough. How dare they do such a thing? And in the, in the war that, uh, that takes place, the rest of God's people nearly wipe out the tribe of Benjamin and they make a treaty never to allow their daughter to marry anyone from Benjamin ever. But as they wipe out more and more and more people of the tribe of Benjamin, they realise there's another problem. If we go too far with this, uh, this war, this killing, there won't be 12 tribes of Israel anymore like God had put together in the beginning. If we keep going with the destruction, the the tribe of Benjamin will be sent into oblivion and there will only be 11 tribes, no longer 12. And they realise there's a problem. The problem is there's only a few people of the tribe of Benjamin left. And how are we going to propagate them into the future? How are we going to help them to survive into the future? They've got no one to marry And so the tribe of Benjamin will become extinct and there'll only be 11 tribes left. And now we've made our own treaty to say that no one will give our daughters in marriage to the Benjaminites. And so we're stuck. And so in chapter 21, they hatch a plan. But the plan's no good. Look at verse 10 of chapter 21. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men. And commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, and also the women and the little ones. And this is what you should do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. 600 men left in the Benjaminites. 400 women are stolen to bring to them as their possession. But there's still 200 men that don't have a a woman, don't have a wife. And the rest of the tribes can't give them their daughters. And so what do they do? Verse 20 of chapter 21. And they commanded the people of Benjamin saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances at the festival, then come out from the vineyards and snatch each man a wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin, snatch them and run away. And when their fathers or brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, grant them graciously to us because we did not take, uh, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them, uh, give them to them, else you would now be guilty. So the problem of chapter 19 is murder and rape. And the way the problem of murder and rape is fixed according to the other 11 tribes of Israel is with organised murder and rape. It's chaos. These last three chapters of the book of Judges are a complete scene of chaos amongst God's people where they all live by their own worldview, where everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes, where they were going by gut instinct. We still use those phrases today, don't we? My worldview, gut instinct, doing what I feel is right. And they're all dangerous phrases and dangerous ways to live. And as we read these chapters, we ought to react negatively to what is going on. We ought to do what Israel did not do. You notice in the book of Judges, one of the parts of the cycle of the book of Judges is that even if they didn't mean it, God's people would cry out to God for help in the midst of oppression. And here there's no crying out at all. But we ought to cry out. We ought to do what Israel could not and would not do. And we ought to cry out to God and say, what is going on in a passage like this? Lord, teach us. Help us not to avoid a passage like this. Help us to use the horror here to see what you're really doing. Help the horror here to teach us and rebuke us and correct us and train us in righteousness. So as we finish, a couple of points of reflection. First of all, know this. Living by our own eyes doesn't work. We might put it this way. Subjectivism or living by a subjective worldview, does not work. If your worldview starts within you and comes out of you, that's the wrong place to start. That's what the people of Israel were doing, living by what was right in their own eyes, their own worldview, from within to without. But it does not work. We must live. By a truth that is external to us and not subjective, but objective. See, this is the uh, the problem of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. No external rule, guide, objective at all, and certainly not from God where it ought to have been. No, subjective worldviews. Doing what is right in our own eyes does not work. This is the way Sydney lives in 2022, by our own eyes. This is the world that we are swimming in, in our day-to-day life. These are how our workmates live, some of our family members live. This is how the people around us live, by what is right in their own eyes. And while they may not do what is as bad as what we see here in these chapters... We recognise that the subjectivity of living by what is right in your own eyes does not work. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, you need to know this. Your worldview is not set by what comes in, uh, what is is inside you, out through your eyes or your senses. No, your worldview is set by God. He gives you the lenses by which to see the world. And we must We must build our worldview from his objective reality, not from our own subjective self. Secondly, this passage teaches us that moral freedom is a bondage to chaos. We actually love choice, don't we? We love choice so much. We love to choose what we do, where we go, where we live, who we marry, what job we do. I think we found the COVID stuff so hard because actually the one thing that was taken away from us was choice. Yeah, we were a bit sick occasionally, but it was the choice that was the hardest thing. And that was the thing that we rebelled against and we hated. And actually the worst cultural sin that you can do in 2022 is to remove somebody else's personal choice. Because we love freedom. The freedom to be able to do what we want, when we want, in our own way. But freedom posited that way is a curse. Be careful what you wish for. Freedom... By which we mean in our culture the ability to choose what we want when we want is not freedom at all. Think about this in regards to parenting. Do we teach our children that we want to open up the world to them and give them every choice and every possible opportunity? I think that sometimes. I want to give my kids every opportunity in the world. But do we? Or are we just widening their choices so much that we're asking them to live in a world of chaos? See, we must be careful that we don't court chaos in our own lives or the lives of our family, for here is chaos and freedom in its bloom in chapters 19 to 21. See, the Bible uses this description in a different way. It says that freedom, in the way we understand it, the freedom to choose whatever we want, is actually slavery to sin. Where we are not just sinners, but we're enslaved to sin. And true freedom is found in Christ, where we put that away and instead we put on Christ. Be careful that you do not wish for moral freedom because it's bondage to chaos. Thirdly, God is our authority. We're told in this passage that without a king, there is chaos and as followers of the Lord Jesus, we do not live by a subjective worldview or freedom to decide what we decide, but we are ruled by God in his word, and that is for our good. Sometimes people say, don't they, that the rules that God gives are, are, are too restrictive, or they make you that straighty 180 type of character that doesn't really relate in the world very well, but, but God is our authority for our good. He rules us by His word. It's good for us to have a king over us called the Lord Jesus Christ and to listen to what He says to us, lest we court chaos ourselves. We must listen to Him. The nation of Israel were far from listening to God, they'd lost that a long time ago. When was the last time that you listened to God in His word personally and allowed His word to impact your lives? Fourthly, don't pretend with regards to sin. In this passage, there's sin absolutely everywhere, isn't there? But one of the things that's most on show is the sin of the Levite. Again, his sin is multiplied throughout the passage. But one of the things that he does is, in his own cowardice, he runs away from his own sin. Look again at chapter 20 and verse 4. When he gets the congregation together, who are fired up and angry about what has taken place, the Levite... The husband of the woman who was murdered answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin and my conc- I and my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me and they violated my concubine and she is dead. Do you notice what he left out? All of his own responsibility. He didn't mention any of that. He comes out as the moral, purity, high ground guy and he tells a half truth but forgets his own sin in the midst of it all. And the gospel, uh, the passage here reminds us that we ought to uh, shine a light on our own sin. Not to pretend that we have sinned or to minimise our sin or to leave those embarrassing sins in the dark. But instead to shine a light on them and as Ephesians 5 said in our Bible studies this week, to expose those things. For it's true that it never does us good to allow sin to reign in our hearts without being exposed. Exposing us, our sin can feel embarrassing and harsh and difficult. But if we keep it in the dark, it eats at our soul and affects others around us. This man, as he kept his sin secret, affected a vast many others. Yes, if he had revealed it, it would have been bad news for him. True. But think of what happened as a result. A whole tribe of the nation of Israel was nearly wiped out and all those women were snatched and taken away. All of which could have been changed if he told the truth. But our sin isolates us and guilts us. And for us that know Jesus, it even reminds us that that, that we can be forgiven. But we must confess it, as James 5.16 says, bring it into the light and find liberation and forgiveness in Jesus. Number five, God's restraining grace. we have got to ask this question, don't we? Lots of people have asked me this week, why didn't God stop that situation? And the passage is not super clear about that, it must be honest. As I said, the narrator only tells us at the start and the end that this is bad news. But nonetheless, God allows this stuff to happen in this passage. In many ways, it's because the nation of Israel had rejected and ignored God from years gone by. And he had given his people what they wanted, a life without him and all of the consequences that went with it. That's what hell is ultimately, isn't it? God giving to people what they've wanted for their whole life. A life without the blessings that God generously offers to all people. And so we ask the question, why didn't God intervene here? It sounds like such a wonderful solution. God, just come in and intervene, but be careful what you wish for. You see, we do want, don't we, we want God to come in and intervene when someone has an affair that's close to our lives. Why didn't God intervene in that case? But be careful what you wish for. If God would intervene and wipe out that person at that time for their sin, what about the porn that people watch? Or what about God coming in to fix the thieves while we fudge a number here and there? Or while God wants to deal with the murderer, our thoughts of horrific violence against someone else that we don't follow through with. Be careful what we wish for. Here is a godless society, religious but godless. And as we read a passage like this, we must ask ourselves, why do we only read about this a number of times in the Bible? Well, this is because God in his restraining grace does not allow us to be as sinful as we could be. We believe in total depravity, that is, sin impacts everything, not utter depravity, we're as bad as we could be. God restricts the sinfulness of the world, and we ought to thank him for that. That this world is as good as it is, is not a result of our human achievements, it's a result of God's restraining grace, especially in our nation and our area. A couple more. Fixing sinfulness. As we look at a passage like this, we cry out and we say, Gotta to, got to fix sinfulness. And there's all sorts of ways we can do it by creating a a moral moral majority and a cancel culture to go along with it, to legislate against these sorts of things happening, to be on about advocacy and social progression so that none of these things happen again. And they all have their place, but at the end of the day, they're not going to fix sinfulness. The the, uh, uh, The answer to the problem of sinfulness lies in God's hands alone. When we yearn at a passage like this and say, it shouldn't be that way. Then the answer is only provided in God. Jesus is given for us, taking our sin and giving us new and eternal life. Two more God's compassionate love. Many in this passage point to the inequality between men and women. And the fact that it's here is uh, undeniable. What is done here uh, to the woman by this man is horrible, by these men. But as I mentioned before, the fact that it's in the Bible does not mean that it is endorsed by the Bible. In fact, the opposite. As we come through to Paul's letters in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 5 that our Bible studies will look at this week, we see that the husband ought to lay down their life for the bride to care and protect. This is a description of Christ and the church. God's compassionate love for us. And it's God's compassionate love for us that Jesus would lay down his life for the bride becomes the pattern for our marriage relationships. Men, let's take the stand here to love as Christ has loved us. None of this eradicates our differences, but it reminds us that our responsibility as men is self-sacrificial love like God has shown to us, not like we see in this passage. And then finally, As this passage makes clear, there was no king in Israel, but God has given us a king, King Jesus. And so we must work hard under the power of the the Holy Spirit of God who trains us and through the word of God that instructs us to put aside our own agenda, our own game, our own story, our own glory, our own motives and put in its place the King, the Lord Jesus. We are all people who want to elevate ourselves to kingly status, but if we do... We caught chaos when God offers salvation. As we finish, let me ask you, as we spend a moment or two to reflect now, who is the king of your heart? Is it the Lord Jesus? And if so, come again to his word. Come again to his spirit and allow him to rule your life. Well, I'm going to... uh, pray in a moment but uh, I know that's a bit longer today but I hope you understand there's a lot there to go through and I want to make sure I cover as many bases as I can uh, but I want to give you the chance to ask a question so let's spend 90 seconds or so you can write a question slido.com and uh, hashtag HBSB and I'll come back and answer a couple quickly in a moment Thank you for your questions, and uh, I'm very open to talking some more after the service about all of this too, uh, but a couple of things that are here. First of all, we point out these passages, but glance over our own. Uh, abortion, greed in work and money, not loving our neighbour, child slave labour, uh, to make our iPhone and the World Cup. Uh, yeah, I get what that's what that's coming at. I... I uh, uh, Tossed up the idea in my own mind in this talk to bring before you some of the things that happen in our own land that we do turn a blind eye to, let's be fair, in different areas of, of, uh, of life. And then I thought, well, that I could share a whole bunch of it with you, but they'd be unnecessarily salacious to add to what's also already salacious in this passage. But we just need to read the newspapers to see that that's the case in our own nation. Uh, and yes, um, we should be outraged by those too. Um, and, uh, but that doesn't diminish the outrage of this passage it should be there uh, outrage on all counts um, the the worry I have is that our outrage in our own nation uh, is we are we are looking through the lens of our World to fix the problem of outrage. So the, the problem of all of these issues in the world are there and we should turn, yes, turn to government to try and fix the problem or turn to social action to try and fix the problem or turn to advocacy to try and fix the problem. All of that's great. At the end of the day, though, the, people have been trying those sorts of things for a long time. They haven't necessarily worked uh, and there's just a different set of problems coming forward. And so the gospel is the answer to, the, to these problems. This is where God fixes humanity. And uh, we need to remind ourselves that this is the problem of humanity gone to seed as far as its sinfulness is concerned, and we need to make sure that the gospel is our answer. Uh, Second question, how do we respond to a world that thinks that Christianity is subjective thinking? That's a great question. Uh, uh, The answer to that is in the objective reality of Jesus. So Jesus is not just an idea or uh, putting forward a philosophy or putting forward a a series of uh, teachings. Jesus is a real historical fleshly character who uh, came into our world and died on a cross and rose from the dead again. All historically uh, able to be proven. That's where our faith uh, uh, lives and dies. Uh, As I've said from, uh, from this place before, if you can find the bones of Jesus in the Middle East somewhere, Christianity is finished. We don't bother with our building program anymore. We just pick up the money and run away and do something else with it. Because that's the whole point. It's, it, there's absolutely no point uh, because it's, it's based in history. That's something that the other religions don't have. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's why it's not subjective thinking. Uh, Next question. If we have an unconfessed sin, are we meant to confess our own hidden sins to everyone all the time as part of our story or just once? Uh, We we confess our sins together here, and we do so in a general sense because they're all different. But we do that as an expression of our, 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 our confessing our sins together. I wouldn't necessarily recommend you confess every single sin to every single person all of the time. But I would recommend that you bring it out into the open at the same time. Uh, So not to every single person. Don't sort of parade it on a sandwich board, this is what I did this week or whatever. But if there's not a few people that you're sharing those things with, then that's a problem uh, because we are to confess our sins to one another. James 5 verse 16, we are to confess our sins to each other. Um, Final one, because it's connected to the last few that are there. Why is there such little regard for women? And then this is carried over into the New Testament how can that attitude be tolerated today? Uh, and this connected one, this reading helps us to see what little regard there was for women in biblical times. Paul, a man of his own time, would have shared these attitudes towards women. Um, I hope you can see from the passage that the passage is condemning what is taking place towards the, the women here. Uh, very much so. That passage is condemning it, but although it is just telling us the story of what happened. But what is at the beginning and the end condemns everything that happens in the middle. That Paul would have the same attitudes, I think, is flatly wrong. That's just wrong. Paul does not have the same attitudes. Ephesians 5, verse 25, says this Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. We must be careful to distinguish what might be seen as restrictive roles in the Bible that are differences between men and women and the value of men and women. The value of men and women is much, much more highlighted in the New Testament that we give credit for. Uh, the women were the first people to see Jesus resurrected from the dead uh, and women are given high place and high honour in the people of God throughout the New Testament. And Paul says to husbands, if you treat your wives poorly, and you will not lay down your life for them, then you're not living as Christ has asked you to. In other words, you men should die for your wives. Now, I don't know if that, whatever else we think about the Bible, that's a high view of women. And it should be celebrated. I think that's wonderful. But it doesn't erode any differences that are between us. And sometimes those differences are there in the things that we do and the roles that we hold and the way that we live our lives. And that's okay because we are different people as men and women together. But Paul and the New Testament has a very high view of women and I think we should stick to that and remember what he says to us. And that's what we're going to look at in our Bible studies this week as well. Uh, Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We recognise this challenging passage and uh, uh, we thank you that you've spoken to us about the dangers of, of, of sin gone a long way uh, and we ask please that you might protect us, protect our church, protect our families, protect our nation, protect our area against all of these sorts of things. Uh, we ask please that uh, uh, that as we see sinfulness around us you would remind us that you have the cure for us in Jesus who gave up his own life for his bride, the church and we pray please uh, that uh, that you might help us to respond in love and obedience towards you and towards the people around us We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing our final song.